Israel's latest armed conflict was with a group that calls itself Islamic Jihad, or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ. It's supported, armed, and trained by the rulers of the Islamic Republic of Iran. To learn more about this American-designated terrorist organization, how badly it was set back by the missiles of August, and what Iran's rulers might do to build it back better. I'm joined by FDD Chief Executive Officer Mark Dubowitz, who was in Israel during the three-day battle, and FDD Senior Vice President Jonathan Shanzer, who followed reporting on the fighting in English and in Hebrew and in Arabic. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. All right, to begin with, let's just make sure we know where we are. It appears, uh, John and Mark, that, that, that there has been a ceasefire, not to be confused with peace, and it's and that the ceasefire is holding, yes, because Israel has reopened Gaza's commercial crossing, allowing trucks carrying fuel to, for, the, for electricity and other vital goods to roll into Gaza. And also Palestinians from Gaza, about 14,000, I believe, uh, are entering Israel to work at jobs that pay them much better than what they can earn in Gaza. Mark, do I have that all correct uh, as far as you know? Yeah, Cliff, exactly right. I mean, where I am right now in uh, in central uh, Israel, um, there's a ceasefire, things are quiet, and uh, it was a pretty intense three days. Uh, but I think it was a very successful operation for Israel in general. I think Prime Minister Lapid did something that was very rare uh, in countering terrorists in Gaza, which was he launched a preemptive attack. Uh, it went very well from an operational perspective, did significant damage to Islamic Jihad, took out senior leadership took out a significant number of their rockets and, and arsenal. And uh, and believe it or not, Cliff, they actually did a pretty good job on the public relations side, which is pretty unusual for the state of Israel. So, so far, ceasefire is holding and crossing fingers that it'll, it'll continue to do so. Uh, you've mentioned several subjects I want to come back to. But before we do, John, most people, particularly most uh, listeners to this program, uh, are probably you know quite familiar with Hamas. Um, in Gaza, with Hezbollah, in Lebanon, though they also send fighters to places like Syria. Uh, but I, you know, until a few days ago, I think many didn't know much about Islamic Jihad or Palestinian Islamic Jihad or PIJ, as it's maybe not affectionately known. Why? Maybe give us a quick sketch of Islamic Jihad and, and what or PIJ and what it is and where it came from. Sure. Well, I think um, you know most people are, are aware of of Hezbollah. Um, I would say that this is an organization created in the Palestinian arena that really mirrors Hezbollah. Uh, it was created uh, in the early to mid-1980s, much in the way that Hezbollah was. It was forged by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, which everybody knows is sort of the tip of the spear for the regime in Tehran. 
Um, it is an organization that really is entirely funded by Iran and has been from its inception. It uh, takes a lot of the orders from Iran. Its fighters are trained in Iran. Uh, and so it is a full-on uh, Iranian proxy. That's a little bit distinct from Hamas, which, of course, also is trained and armed and funded by Iran. But they have um, a, a somewhat different uh, leadership structure where they reach consensus on decisions. They are certainly influenced significantly by Iran, but they also have leadership in places like Turkey and Qatar and Lebanon and Iran, uh, and they all come together and make these decisions. With Pidge, it is really, uh, it's a clear chain of command. Uh, the leadership in Tehran tells them what to do, and they do it. And, and two points I want to make, because I think people get confused about this, and I think it's also just interesting. So both Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are Sunni, whereas Hezbollah is Shia. And of course, the Islamic regime in Tehran is Shia. There have been people saying, incorrectly for a very long time on very many issues, oh, you know, Shia and Sunni can't possibly get together on it. But they can when they have a common enemy. And they are, and both the regime in Tehran and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, um, they're dedicated to, as the name suggest to jihad, which means they they believe that there is no negotiating with the Israelis. They believe that Israel must be wiped out. They are in business to kill Israelis, to kill Israeli Jews and those who side with them. Um, and there's no there's no talk, there's, there's no question about well peace talks and compromise and win win situation. None of that applies when you're talking about. Palestinian Islamic Jihad. It's an, it's an international jihad, and they specialize in one area that they consider priority, and that's where the there is a Jewish state, the exercise by the Jewish people of self-determination, and they cannot abide that or even talk about the possibility of peaceful coexistence. Is that am I exaggerating in any way? No, I think I think that's right. Um, but there's another, I think, clear distinction between Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and, and John has talked about some of the many differences, but one of the major differences is Hamas actually has governing responsibilities in Gaza. Um, so unlike Islamic Jihad, Hamas has to balance these responsibilities to govern this territory and um, and oversee the lives of you know a couple of million Palestinians with its uh, dedication, its extreme dedication to the eradication of the state of Israel. Where Islamic Jihad has no such responsibilities uh, and doesn't have to actually balance any of these considerations. It, it is, it is as John said, it's an Iranian proxy. Its sole mission is to kill Israelis. That, that's its mission. And um, and that's certainly what it tried to do over the past three days. Uh, unsuccessfully, thank God, as it turned out. And, and, you know, John, Hamas is not what you call a tolerant organization, even of rivals. As you wrote a whole book about the civil war, not very well reported on by the Western press, that took place between about after the Israelis withdrew entirely from Gaza, civil war 2005-2007 between Fatah and Hamas. And at this point, uh, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, the president, you know, he can't come and take a beach vacation in Gaza. They don't allow him. But Hamas has been tolerant of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And I assume the reason for that is because you cannot offend the Iranians. If it's an Iranian-backed organization, you got to you got to treat them with some caution. Is that is that also correct? It is. It is. But I think it's also important to just take a step back and look at the battles 
during which Hamas has uh, squared off with Israel. Uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad takes part in those battles. They are part of the Hamas army, right? So they're firing rockets just as Hamas is. Um, and, and they do it in concert. They do it in coordination with the Iranians uh, conducting, essentially, uh, from Tehran, or actually more recently, from what has been described as a nerve center in uh, in Beirut, uh, a, a nerve center that includes the IRGC, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad. What was so different here, and what was really remarkable to watch as a student of Palestinian affairs, was to watch Islamic Jihad doing this almost entirely on its own, uh, with Hamas just standing to the side, not stopping them, basically giving them whatever they needed in order to continue to wage this war, but not taking part themselves. And on the one hand, you know, I think a lot of people were saying, well, you know, that's a good thing, right? Hamas didn't get involved. It wasn't a full-blown war in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and perhaps even Israel was able to establish some deterrence after last year's 11-day war against Hamas, where Hamas really suffered a lot of significant damage. I mean, the Israelis took out an electronic warfare kit that was uh, designed to um, uh, to jam Iron Dome, for example. Uh, the Israelis destroyed the underground metro system of commando tunnels that were uh, forged with help by Iran. Uh, the Israelis took out commandos themselves, some of the senior leadership, a lot of the rocket arsenals. So maybe Hamas was deterred. And I think that's that's a good argument. But there is one interesting debate that has erupted. It, it really began during the war, and I suspect we're going to see some pretty heated discussion coming out of Israel in the coming months. And that is, did Hamas just learn a lesson that they can allow for smaller groups funded by Iran and directed by Iran to wage war against Israel, and they can just kind of stand by, allow the territory that they control to be used, and therefore they don't need to suffer the brunt of an Israeli reprisal. And it'll be really interesting to see whether this is a new tactic that Hamas has learned and really whether Israel allows that to stand in future conflicts. Um, also, I've, I found a little confusing as I try to re read all the reporting. The, uh, the, the story of how this conflict, this conflagration came about, uh, as I understand it, and you tell me if I've got this right at this point, the Israelis had intel about a planned pidge attack. In particular, they were that they were going to use an anti-tank missile, not to strike a tank, but to strike probably an Israeli civilian bus. And there were going to be snipers coming from Gaza, and they were telling people near Gaza, you better watch where you walk, watch where you are. So the people near Gaza were kind of, as they call it in the Gaza envelope, were under threat. So the Israelis arrest a pidge commander. Now, this is an interesting aspect of it. We think of, okay, you've got in you've got in Gaza Hamas and you've got pidge. You've got in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority, main faction is Fatah, but the Israelis arrested a pidge commander in the West Bank because the parts of the West Bank, and John, you may want to explain this, particularly the northern parts of the West Bank, are in, you have increasingly both Hamas and Pidge elbowing out the Palestinian Authority uh, and the Palestinian Authority secure, security forces. So the Israelis arrest a Pidge commander. And then threaten the Israelis, particularly those living in Gaza, saying, you better give him back. And the Israelis say, oh, no, we're not succumbing to threats. 
and you know, correct me if I got anything wrong, but take it from there. No, no, it's it's. I think you got it essentially right. I think you know, to backtrack just a little bit more. Getting back to that nerve center, that headquarters that I mentioned, and we joke that this is possibly the only functioning institution left in in Beirut. Um, but this nerve center, ever since the war of of last year, that 2021 conflict with Hamas, we saw Iran basically uh, funneling weapons into the West Bank. Uh, providing intelligence on what you know what uh, what targets may be softer than others inside Israel, and really trying to generate what we would describe as a third intifada, and that has been going on for at least the last year. This has been an Iranian project with help by Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah, um, and so we've seen the emergence of these no-go zones. Uh, Janine is, I would say, probably the most prominent among them. This is a town in, in the northern West Bank. It was probably made more famous a few months ago with the killing of uh, Shireen Abu Akleh. This is the uh, Al Jazeera journalist who was caught in the crossfire between armed gunmen um, and the IDF. And of course, the Israelis were immediately blamed for it. What was missing in this entire discussion, apart from the fact that the, the, the investigation has been inconclusive as to who was responsible for her death, uh, but what was missing in all of it is that Janine, for the last 20 years, dating back to the second intifada, dating back to 2002, has been this place of intermittent chaos where armed gangs can edge out the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis go in to restore order, not just for themselves, but so that the Palestinian Authority can govern. And so it's in this context that, you know, they go in and they arrest this pidge commander his name was Bassem al-Sadi. Um, and in, in the aftermath of that arrest, that's when the Israeli intelligence system started blinking red. Now, I'll tell you, Mark and I visited the Southern Command Ops Center. Uh, this was, I guess, about a year and a half ago. We were we were there, Mark, if you recall. And they, they showed us around. And it was this incredibly high-tech um, ops center where they had all these bells and whistles going off constantly. Anytime anybody got near the border, they, you know, they have incredible, I just call it intelligence dominance. And we could, I don't know if we should get into everything that we saw there, but they can see and they can hear when attacks are imminent. And as we understand it now, uh, the Israelis saw this, uh, anti-tank missile attack, uh, a plot being formed in real time, and they decided to take out the man who was responsible for it. His name is Taisir al-Jabari. When they took him out, that was essentially what prompted Pidge to unleash those thousand rockets that we saw over three days. And that was in that, of course, was in Gaza where he was. We should mention that. And Mark, I said you want, but I also want you to bring in this: the Israeli incursions in northern Gaza. Um, we had starting in March. You had you had at least nineteen Israelis killed on Israel soil. In I mean, it, it, places like Tel Aviv by terrorists, and I think that the Israelis were saying we're going to crack down on various terrorist cells, including the ones that the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian security forces are either unable or unwilling to crack down on, and a lot of it may be on uh, un, unable as well as un, 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 unwilling. No, Cliff, exactly right. I mean, that's the key fact in this uh, sequence of events that, you know, the reporters just seem to forget. And that is that 19 Israelis were murdered. They were murdered by terrorists who were coming out of Janine and Nablus. Uh, unfortunately, also some who uh, who were Israeli Arabs who came out of Israel proper. And uh, the IDF and the Shabak and the border police 
went into these Palestinian towns in order to put a stop uh, to these these murderous attacks. And that's when this chain of events occurred. I mean, that's when this Al Jazeera journalist was killed in this crossfire that John mentioned. Uh, That's why the Israelis have been trying to neutralize a whole host of terror organizations there, not just Islamic Jihad, but Hamas, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, and the recognition as well that the Palestinian security services are either unwilling or unable to uh, take care and discharge their own security responsibilities in a territory that is under their jurisdiction. So that's why that's why the IDF is there in the first place. That led to the whole chain of events that, that John talked about. You wouldn't know that in the reporting because in terms of the causal connection, people forget that it actually began with 19 Israelis being killed. And, and here's the other really important factor that you will see in almost, I think, none of the coverage. And that is when the Israelis go into the West Bank, and when they go after these terrorist organizations, they are also at the same time propping up the Palestinian Authority. Indeed, I would argue, and please tell me if you think there's a reasonable position that I'm wrong, the Palestinian Authority requires the assistance of Israeli security forces to exist, that if the Israelis were to to pull out of the West Bank, as is being demanded by various groups, the BDS movement, uh, the U- various people, UN, various commentators, just move out. Palestinian Authority, I don't think would exist very long. What would happen is either Hamas or Pidge or other terrorist organizations would take over the West Bank. And then you would end up with, of course, them doing what they do, which is their job is to kill Jews. They would start. The Israelis would defend themselves because that's what the Israeli defense forces are for. And guess what would happen? A lot of Jews would be killed, a lot of Israelis would be killed, a lot of Palestinians would be killed. So objectively, BDS is calling for the killing of, 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 of Palestinians in the West Bank. That's am I, is there any fault to my logic here? Look, I don't think I, I don't think that that there's any fault to it. I think you take it to its sort of logical conclusion. But I think the, the point that I would just make here is that uh, the coordination is crucial. And it's not just crucial for for Israeli security. It's crucial for the Palestinians to maintain whatever control they have. You've got a president right now who is, you know, in his 80s, who's not particularly uh, enthusiastic about governing. And he, you know, he, he sort of abdicates those responsibilities to the Israelis while screaming at them at the same time to get out. Um, and it's uh, it, it's really remarkable to watch the Palestinians do this. But by the way, they're not the only ones who do it, right? I mean, the Jordanians are doing it as well, and they were among the most critical uh, Arab country, Arab uh, peace partner of the Israelis during this most recent conflict. And they're 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 using rather acerbic rhetoric um, to describe what Israel was doing in defending itself and its citizens. And meanwhile, Israel is the only thing standing in the way of utter chaos on its own borders if it were not policing the West Bank. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, Cliff, Cliff, I think it's worse than that. I I actually think that these terror organizations that are operating in in Janine and Nablus, as as John said, are extremely popular with the Palestinian street and much more popular than the the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Security Services. I mean, these these, uh, you know, these militants are considered to be folk heroes, have a huge amount of support. Um, and Abbas does not. And the Palestinian Authority is considered corrupt and inept and in cahoots with the Israeli security services. Um, and I think you're right. I think the logical conclusion of this would be the collapse of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and the complete takeover of the West Bank by 
these terrorist organizations, which is exactly what Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader of Iran, has said is his plan, right? To do to the West Bank what he did to Gaza. And so the West Bank would then become an Iranian-controlled terror platform, um, but much more dangerous than Gaza because it would have tens of thousands of missiles and terrorist organizations pointed at the heartland, at the industrial and civilian heartland of, of the state of Israel. And doing it from some altitude, it's important to recognize, and this has been pointed out to, to, to me by various Israeli military people, because with that altitude, you can it's much easier to lob not just missiles, but mortars, for example, on the international airport, on the population centers of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, Extra, I mean, much, much more dangerous, as you suggest, than from Gaza, even though the missiles from Gaza. And this is also gets back, just get back to what you're saying. If you think about what the Islamic Republic, what Tehran is attempting to do, they want as Israel to face fire, missiles, attacks from as many fronts as possible. So they want it from Lebanon, they want it from Gaza, they want it from the West Bank, they want it from Syria, which is why the Israelis have been fighting a war between the wars in Syria as well, where you have Hezbollah going in, you have Iranian forces going in. They want to essentially surround Israel for that final conflagration that they want to, to wipe Israel off. I think that's just important to, to point out that they have a strategy here, and it's, it's a rather clever one. Go ahead, Mark. Khamenei has said this. I mean, he wants to turn Tel Aviv into Seoul. What, what does that really mean? I mean, if you look at Seoul, Korea today, right, the, the North Koreans not only have nuclear weapons, but they have massive conventional armaments right on the, the border with, uh, with South Korea. And they could destroy South Korea, which is, as, as you know, Cliff, you've been there, John, you've been there, um, highly you know, sophisticated and affluent city, reminds you of Tel Aviv. And uh, what they've done effectively, the North Koreans, is that they've taken away not only the conventional military option of the South Korean military, they've taken away the U.S. military option, right? U.S. military plan is no today that if they were to take on the North Koreans in any way, it would be the end of Seoul. Well, that's what Ali Khamenei has specifically and explicitly said he wants to do to Tel Aviv, right? He wants to surround Israel with massive conventional military uh, armaments, never mind a nuclear weapon. And he wants to reduce the ability of the IDF to be able to respond in a conventional manner to any kinds of escalation on any border. That that has been his plan. And, um, you know, Israeli leaders, I mean, finally, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Bennett said, what are we doing? Why are we why are we continuing to go uh, and try to defend ourselves from Iranian proxies? we got to go to to the head of the octopus, as he called it, not just the tentacles. And we got to hit Iran inside Iran because it's enough playing defense. We got to play offense. But Khamenei has had the strategy for years, and he's been brilliantly executing on uh, on every aspect of it. And I want a snippet of history, a little familiarization with history is really important, even though I think a lot of the reporters don't have it. What we call the West Bank was called Judea and Samaria until it was conquered by Jordan during Israel's War of Independence which was fought against Israel's Arab neighbors, the nation states surrounding Egypt, Syria, Iraq, um, Jordan. Uh, they opposed self-determination for the Jews of Palestine within any borders whatsoever, even the very constricted borders that the UN suggested at the time, which the, which the Israelis said, okay, we'll take it. And all the Arab states said, no, we're not, we're not doing it. Now, when the, when the, the Jordanians conquered 
Judea and Samaria. When they conquered the West Bank, what did they do? People forget this. They expelled all the Jews who lived there, including from the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, and they desecrated the religious sites. And Israel took back the West Bank from Jordan during the Six-Day War of 1967. They took it back from Jordan, not from the Palestinians. But they've said, you know what? We can give it to the Palestinians if we can have a two-state solution. And they have tried on at least four occasions to give more than 95% of it back but in exchange for an end of the conflict, which it didn't happen. The West Bank is ruled by the Palestinian Authority under the Oslo Accords. Uh, anyway, I think all that is just important to understand, and it's the context which we don't have. All right, let's go back. You mentioned this, to uh, talking about a few of the dogs that didn't bark. And one is Hamas staying on the sidelines. And um, and Hezbollah stayed on the sidelines of the conflict, too. Also, there was no upsurge of violence in Jerusalem or in cities like Haifa that have a mixed Arab and Jewish population, or one could say a mixed Palestinian Jewish population. All that's interesting, and there are various explanations for that. One of the things that was going on, I, I don't know how much credit you give to this, is after last year's conflict, which you wrote about, John, you, put a, you wrote a whole book about, um, the Israelis were trying to make life a little better for the Gazans. And, they were, and there's a lot to reconstruct, and there were electricity keeping it on, and all kinds of things. Again, more Palestinians from Gaza coming to Israel. Hamas wasn't ready to have another fight and have all that stop. They want, because as Mark pointed out, they have some governing authority. Uh, they have to think about, do we really want to subject our people to that now if we're not going to win? They may have had no choice in it, but maybe that's one of the reasons Hamas said, you know what, they're going to do, we can't stop them, but we're not going to, we're not going to be fully engaged in this battle because we know what, because if that happens, There'll be the Israelis will be targeting us as well, and we're not. And I'm I, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's pretty hard to tell how Gazans have responded to this in in general. Do they think in Gaza, oh well, Pidge really defended our rights, or do they think, oh, they brought more suffering on us, and we and and we could use a rest at this? Point? I think it's a bit of both, Cliff. Unfortunately, I mean, I think there are those that that see themselves as part of the so-called resistance, you know, those that, that wanted to see yet another war. Although, I mean, I, I must say, you know, if, if they, if they think this through, they must know they are simply not going to win. Um, and these are futile wars. Um, every one of them, we know the outcome before they begin, right? Iron Dome only gets better in terms of shooting down the rockets that are fired into Israel. It was 97% uh, accuracy this time around. Uh, very few got through. Israel, I think, uh, is dominating the skies. They've got uh, total intelligence dominance, taking out top leaders and really all of the major military installations. Uh, and so even for those that are angling for more war against Israel, they have to know what the outcome is. There are, I think there are those who are probably not allowed to say so, that they've just had it with the amount of violence that continues to be initiated by their own leaders every few years. It's got to be exhausting for this beleaguered population. I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's an open air prison. Okay. The question is, who are the jailers? And I don't think it's Israel at this point. I think we can be very clear that Hamas's rule in the Gaza Strip is not 
unlike what we see from the Taliban in uh, in Afghanistan. It's a very similar style of rule. And we see that there are gag orders about what people can say in the public. Even, by the way, Western reporters were gagged during this most recent conflict. They weren't even allowed to talk about the fact that Pidge fired an errant rocket onto its own people. Um, but one thing I'll just note, by the way, that I thought was fascinating and, and I, I think very laudable uh, was Yair Lapid, this caretaker prime minister, never never ran a war before, right? In fact, Israelis have never actually seen anybody run a war other than Bibi since 2008, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Bibi came in in 2009. So he's been Mr. Security for all these years. I think it's been it was really interesting, I think, for um, Israelis to see someone else do this. And do it well. There was excellent coordination between the IDF and the prime minister's office, and, and it's designed to be that way. Um, but what was really interesting to me was, you know, there was about 12 hours where we knew that a ceasefire was about to come into place. Egypt had already brokered it. This is the way every one of these conflicts run, where, you know, Egypt brokers a, a ceasefire, but then you've got to wait until it's it, until it's put in place. And it was during that time, Israel said, we have done everything that we needed to do. We've achieved all of our objectives. We are no longer firing. And meanwhile, Pidge had at that point fired 650 rockets. The total number by the end of the ceasefire was over a thousand. So they fired more than 350, 400 rockets at Israel and Lapid did not respond. He actually held fire as long as Iron Dome was working he was not interested in adding to the misery of Gazans. And I think that was really an incredible message. I know it was really well received here in Washington by our leadership. I have to imagine it was probably also well received in Gaza for those who were at least willing to admit what Israel had done. You know, I wonder, Mark, if if the if Tehran and Pidge didn't think the Israeli government, this is a caretaker government, it's a very fragile coalition. This is a good time to attack them. I bet they will be in disarray and not be able to respond effectively. I wonder, this is an opportunity. I wonder if that that wasn't their theory going in, which, I mean, didn't work out very well. Yeah, I think think that's right. First of all, I I wanted to say one point. From a strategic communications point of view, we should never say pitch. We should always say Islamic Jihad Uh and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I think it's a very Washington uh, phenomenon mm. where we start to talk yeah. about acronyms. And I think we should continue to remind everybody it's Palestinian Islamic Jihad. These are jihadists, they're Islamists, and they're Palestinian Islamist jihadists. Uh, I, I'm well, sort of, uh, it's a, one of my pet peeves of the past week. Uh, and I, I see it a lot in, in the reporting and even in some of the communications from uh, from the IDF. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Cliff. I mean, I think people don't realize that there is a professional class here um, there's quote a deep state here, except here the deep state actually works. Um, and the deep state is the professional class, it's the military, it's the intelligence community. Uh, and they're they're operating, regardless of what's going on on the political side with all of the the usual political chaos that takes place here. And you know, they they're ready. Um, and I think John's exactly right. I think Lapid did an admirable job of uh, of executing this war, knowing when to punch and knowing when to pull punches knowing when they've achieved their objective and knowing when not to go too far, because there's always that temptation and it's happened in many operations. You go one step too far. It's an errant strike. Number of Palestinian civilians are killed. And all of a sudden there's a huge backlash internationally and even in Washington. And then there's a lot of pressure 
from a U.S. administration for the Israelis to to wind down their operations. So thankfully, that did not happen. Um, in fact, I think as as I saw the last count, I think the Palestinian Islamic Jihad errant missile fire um, killed more Palestinians than than uh, than the IDF did, including children. So that also resulted in uh, a huge backlash internationally. And uh, and even in Gaza, I'll say one other thing. I mean, maybe I've been here because I've been here a month, and I'm I'm getting too cynical. I, I'm not so sure that that the vast majority of Palestinians living in Gaza are tired and want an end to war. I, I'm worried that this this is a a society that is um, has been so radicalized and is so um, dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel that um, that they're not human shields anymore. That there are willing participants in these wars. I, I saw the the mother of um, one of the Islamic Jihad commanders who had been killed by Israel in uh, in a funeral procession, and and her comments and her face. I mean, she was she was gleeful. She was gleeful. She was happy that her son had been a martyr, a martyr to the cause. I mean, you can't you you could not even imagine that happening on the Israeli side. That that I can't, John. You may remind me. I can't imagine an Israeli mother, right? Who would be gleeful and happy that her son or daughter had been killed in an operation? And it really terrifies me when I see that that hatred in their eyes and the sense that that they are absolutely dedicated to the destruction of of Israel, um, and they are willing to sacrifice their children to do so. You know, the, the getting back to the, the Israelis probably did better, it seemed to me, than they usually do in terms of debunking some of the things that that were being claimed by. Uh, by Islamic Jihad. Um, in, for example, I did get out at least about how many missiles that Islamic Jihad fired landed back in Gaza and killed people. And the Israelis were able to debunk that with proof. The, 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 most, the, the one that became most well-known was, uh, was, was Jabalia on, on Saturday night. Um, I think four children out of seven were, were killed. Um, and they claimed, the, oh, Israel has done this, but Israel was able to very quickly release video footage that showed that the rockets were coming from Gaza and falling back into Gaza. And by the way, and this is a whole other thing, the, for Western reporters or any other reporters, if they knew that, very dangerous for them to actually say it and say, well, here's what we are, are finding here, because they and their and and their minders, their uh, who they have to have, uh, would be in big trouble if they if if they if they did. But the Israelis were able to 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 debunk a lot of the the false claims that were being made by uh, by 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 Pidge and by the Gaza Health Ministry, which is always quoted. I'll tell you the backstory on this. I mean, I, I think the Israelis a, a great job, um, very effective at debunking it. It worked a lot better than it usually does. It was it was very quick in get in declassifying the intelligence on it and releasing the information and getting it out to the international press before that lie had spread halfway around the world. Uh, but they got lucky because all of the senior Israeli officials were all sitting in the Kirya in the Israeli Pentagon together in one meeting when that occurred. So you had the prime minister and you had the minister of defense and you had the chief of staff and the head of Mossad and the head of Shabak and all the way down the line, the national security advisor, they're all sitting together. So they were able to work very quickly to um, to get out that information, get it to the media and, and release the intelligence. And 
you know, you, you're not always so lucky that everybody's sitting in the same boardroom. So it, it, it's absolutely imperative. I think the lesson learned from that is that Israel needs to institutionalize uh, that kind of response and have a mechanism so that there is full coordination from all of the disparate agencies, some of whom are, are led by politicians from opposing parties uh, who are going to be running in November against each other. It gets very political and, and very difficult sometimes in terms of interagency coordination. So you got to transfer. We're all sitting in, in the same boardroom to, no, we've got a mechanism and we actually have a, um, a coordinating uh, body that's going to be able to respond for future conflicts because you're not always going to get that lucky. Yeah, a couple of other observations that I think are are, are important here. Um, look, first of all, I think you know when you look at Israel's learning curve, it's been a, a rough, uh, you know, seventy plus years um, in terms of the PR battle. Um, but I think after last year's war, and I think Mark and I heard this firsthand when we were there shortly after we we, we went there a, a month after the the war last year. I think there was a sense of, you know, something's broken, something's wrong. And I think there was a, a, a determination to begin to fix it. Um, I think something that probably helped this time around was that there was no religious pretext to this war, right? The last war, there was this whole narrative about the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and how Israel was purportedly about to eject uh, squatters from East Jerusalem homes. Of course, those people are still there, by the way, a year later, and we can, you know, talk about the how asinine that whole narrative was. But um, you know, a lot of that the 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 narrative of the last war was, you know, Israel is oppressing Palestinians in Jerusalem. There was none of that, right? So there was no religious context for this. There was no nationalist conf- uh, context. This was a battle between Israel and an Iranian proxy, and that Iranian proxy does not have the same kind of um I don't know uh, that draw that Hamas has. Hamas, and I've, I've, I've talked about this in, in a couple of other places. Hamas is an amalgam of Palestinian nationalism, Muslim Brotherhood ideology, and Iranian Shiite uh, revolutionary ideology as well. And when that when they go to war, it, it's a whole different realm, right? I mean, it it just it all these different activists get motivated and they make a big stink about you know uh, the. Palestinian fight for its homeland. This ended up being something more of a of a JV game for for Israel. It's not to say that there wasn't a danger to Israel. There was a thousand rockets is nothing to sneeze at. But I think this was a good first test run for Israel um, in and I think trying to stand up perhaps a new communications process. Um, and and I think it'll just be interesting to see whether this continues. One thing to just note moving forward is um, this particular government, the Bennett Lapid government has spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, and and I think, you know, uh, what we saw was a good result of the bureaucratic processes that they've started to put together. BB is a little bit different. He's a brilliant communicator, but not maybe so much uh, into the whole interagency processes that need to go into um, declassifying this information and creating messaging that can trickle down throughout the entire Israeli system. And so it'll be really interesting to watch, especially as we head into those elections in November and we see what government comes as a result. I want to hit, hit a few more subjects. I want to do it quickly so we're out of here in about you know five minutes or so. One is uh, at one point on the Iron Dome, everyone says, well, this is wonderful. It saves Israeli lives. I think it needs to be stressed that the Iron Dome saves Palestinian lives too. Because without it, 
Israelis would not be able to, as you suggested, endure hundreds of missiles being fired and just, you know, keep their powder dry. They would hit back very hard. And instead, this, this allows them to have patience, to tolerate enemy attacks um, and not be as aggressive with their assailants. So when Congress is giving money to help with Iron Dome, um, which is a joint U.S. and Israeli project, and one that's good for the U.S. too, because we use it, um, it's also keeping Palestinians alive. They don't have bomb shelters to go into like the Israelis do because Hamas doesn't build bomb shelters, although it does build tunnels for for terrorism and for Hamas officers to go into it. So I think that's important for people to recognize that 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 Iron Dome plays that that role. Um, you can comment on that, but Mark, I want you. We know that a pitch leader was meeting in Tehran with Ibrahim Raisi, the president of the IR of, of the Islamic Republic, and that we know that the that the, he was also meeting with uh, commanders of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. I got to here's the, my <laughs> the question. I got to assume they're going to say, okay, Islamic Jihad was decimated by the Israelis in this battle. We have to acknowledge that. Now we have to build it back. That's going to take a lot of money. Where will we get that money? Oh, I know. The Americans are offering to provide us with hundreds of billions of dollars. That will be so convenient for us if we want to build back Islamic Jihad, underwrite Hamas some more, underwrite the Houthis in Yemen, and uh, on other projects they may have in mind, while also improving their missiles that can carry nuclear weapons as soon as they have them. Does that that sound right to you? Well, that's the split screen, right? The split screen was, you know, the split screen was what was taking place in Gaza and what was taking place in Vienna. And in Vienna, the United States and the Europeans have been uh, talking to the Iranians, have put an offer on the table. According to FDD analysis, uh, Saeed Ghassamanejad is one of our experts, has calculated that in the first year of a return to the Iran deal, the regime in Iran will get $270 billion. Uh, by 2030, they'll get $1 trillion. 2030 is important because most of the restrictions on Iran's nuclear program expire. So yes, Cliff, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, you've got a situation where, and I'll tell you the third split screen, which one has to be aware of, which is that the Department of Justice just recently announced an indictment against an IRGC commander who uh, was orchestrating a plot to kill Ambassador John Bolton, former National Security Advisor of the United States. So three split screens. And Mike Pompeo was also on that list. Right. Well, that's exactly right. He was also on the list. Um, I I heard Bolton say on CNN, I thought it was quite humorous, that he was offended that they were only going to pay $300,000 to kill him and a million dollars to kill Pompeo. I'm glad glad Ambassador Bolton is keeping his sense of humor. But it's but it's a triple split screen, right? It's the Islamic Jihad commander in Tehran meeting with the Islamic Repu- Republic's Revolutionary Guard commander. Screen one. Screen two is our negotiators in Vienna offering a deal that'll give Iran a trillion dollars in sanctions relief and patient pathways to nuclear rep- weapons as those restrictions sunset, and then. The Iranians, at the same time these negotiations are taking place, trying to kill former U.S. officials. Those, those, that's the triple split screen that I think everybody should be uh, very conscious of. All right. My uh, sort of last issues I just want to touch on before we go, or you can touch on anything else if you, if you want to. One is, just to get it on the record, the U.N., as is often the case, um, was not only 
not helpful, but it was actually unhelpful. The UN was was a problem, whereas the Egyptians were at least able to work on getting a ceasefire. The UN was doing what it usually does, making the situation worse. And the other thing, and I'll throw them together and you both can comment as you want. I'm interested to know your assessment of the Abraham Accord nations and their reactions to this conflict. Uh, John, why don't you start and, and Mark, you can finish up. Yeah, I mean, look, on the Abraham Accords, I'll just say, you know, we saw some pretty benign, if not somewhat supportive statements coming out of Morocco, UAE and Bahrain. I think that's very positive. Egypt, um, not an Abraham Accords country, but a country that enjoys um, a longstanding peace with Israel. Look, they're, they, they have this new interesting role. They are the new peacemakers of the region. They played the ceasefire broker last time around in, in May of last year. They did it again now. Um, the rhetoric is not lovely, um, but as the Israelis will tell you quietly um, and even publicly that uh, they need the Egyptians need to have some street cred when they engage with some of the other countries as they broker these peace agreements. I'd love to see the rhetoric dial back a little bit and, and to allow them to continue to take this role. It's a good role for Egypt, quite frankly, because they're not big fans of Hamas. They're not big fans of Iran or Islamic Jihad, for that matter. They want calm just as Israel does. And so I, I like this role for them. The one that I mentioned it earlier, the one that I'm not particularly happy about is the, some of the vitriol, uh, vitriolic rhetoric that we've seen out of Jordan. I don't think it's helpful, and I don't really understand why they need to continue to do this. Jordan, uh, you know, maybe last time you could argue it was because of their custodial role in Jerusalem that is what prompted this. But there again, there was no Jerusalem component in this most recent round. So why they needed to engage in that way, I just don't know. Uh, but in short, though, I think uh, all of the countries with which Israel has made peace over recent years, things are still stable and solid. And I think that is a good sign for things to come. Mark, your final thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, just one postscript to that. John's exactly right. But I've been I've been focused on Saudi Arabia. I think very interesting. Obviously, not a part of the Abraham Accords, no diplomatic relations. And in the past, in these kinds of conflicts, the Saudis would be leading the charge of the United Nations, blasting Israel and trying to get a UN General Assembly resolution condemning Israel and certainly trying to support any kind of Security Council action. Interesting, the Saudis will calibrate. I mean, they're you know they're not going to come out in full support of the Israelis. Um, there will there will be some criticism, but certainly. This is a very different Saudi Arabia than we than we were used to in our lifetime. And I think, you know, when you talk to Saudi officials, they're quietly uh, relishing the fact that that Israel is is hammering Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas and uh, and Iran, because those are obviously the enemies of, of the Saudi king. All right. I think that wraps it up for today. Although there's a lot more we can come back to, a lot more that we did talk about, but I think we got through a lot in a relatively short period of time. So for now, thanks, Mark. Thanks, John. And thanks to all of you who are with us for this almost hour here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.